This season of DDX is sponsored by Biomarin Pharmaceutical, Inc. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. The details of this case study have been changed to protect patient privacy. Today's case presents something we rarely see, a textbook case of symptoms characterizing a rare genetic disease. So the patient is a two-year-old girl who comes to see a pediatric neurologist because of some concerns that her language and speech development is not progressing as well as expected. So at that time, her neurologic examination was normal, as was the rest of her physical examination. And six months later, at the scheduled follow-up, the girl had not made as much improvement in language and speech as had been expected, but there were no other concerns. But then at three years of age, she returned again for scheduled follow-up. The family is now concerned that she's become somewhat clumsy. And they noticed that she'd been falling more than she had. And so at this visit on the neurologic examination, her speech was somewhat less intelligible than previously. It was somewhat slurred. And she clearly had some difficulty with the coordination that had not been noted before. And then she developed some seizures and then had a prolonged seizure that led them to take her to their local emergency department. At that time, with the presence of seizures, the loss of coordination, the continued language delay, additional testing was done. But rare diseases are rare, which makes diagnosing them, even when they're textbook, very difficult. Most pediatric neurologists have seen maybe one case in their entire career. And so they don't have that experience to allow them to recognize this as a specific combination. And that's the challenge that most pediatric neurologists face, most clinicians in general, is there are things that we are familiar with because it's a recognizable pattern. In today's episode, we'll talk about the pattern of symptoms that characterize this rare disease and hopefully how the lessons we learn can help avoid diagnostic odysseys. This is DDX, a podcast from Figure One about how doctors think. This season is all about rare pediatric disorders. I'm Dr. Raj Bardwaj. Today's case comes from Dr. Jonathan Mink, a pediatric neurologist at the University of Rochester, New York. Dr. Mink has been compensated by Biomarin Pharmaceutical, Inc. for his participation in this episode. Now, let's go back to the beginning with our patient. When she was first examined by a pediatric neurologist, alarm bells weren't ringing. Why not? So at that time, her neurologic examination was normal, as was the rest of her physical examination. And the neurologist discussed with the parents that isolated language and speech developmental delay is a common occurrence, and that many children who have the kinds of delays she had end up having normal developmental outcomes. But after six months, the patient didn't improve. At the scheduled follow-up, the girl had not made as much improvement in language and speech as had been expected, but there were no other concerns. And again, her general physical examination were completely normal and there were no concerns of other neurologic signs or symptoms. At three years of age, she returned for a scheduled follow-up. 
This is now one year after the initial concern was raised, where uh, the family is now concerned that she's become somewhat clumsy. And they noticed that she'd been falling more than she had. And although she had been walking since about 12 months of age, she seemed to be less stable on her feet. And there were concerns that she just wasn't as engaged in activities as she had been. She had continued to gain a few extra words, but they were concerned that it was harder for them to understand her. And so at this visit on the neurologic examination, her speech was somewhat less intelligible than previously. It was somewhat slurred. And she clearly had some difficulty with the coordination that had not been noted before. The pediatric neurologist's discussion with the family had now changed. The child's development wasn't just not progressing. It was getting worse. Now the discussion was that there was concern that she was actually not only not making expected gains, but there had been some deterioration in her motor function. She wasn't walking as well. She seemed to be clumsier. That was a red flag that led to more testing. First, an MRI. The MRI scan showed some minor concerns that parts of her brain, the cerebellum, which is in the back of the brain and controls coordination, was not as big as expected. And there was concern there might be some mild atrophy of the brain. When she started having seizures, it became clear her symptoms were progressing and that more testing was needed. At that time, with the presence of seizures, the loss of coordination, the continued language delay, additional testing was done. Another symptom led to another test, an electroencephalogram, or EEG. She had an EEG to try to identify what type of seizures they were, and because of the accumulation of symptoms. And then, another. At that point, it was uh, recommended that they pursue genetic testing to look for different causes of a developmental regression. But the tests, even in combination, didn't point to any one disorder. Seizures are very common in young children. Developmental delay is very common in young children. The loss of coordination and balance is not as common, but still there's a very large range of disorders that can cause these. With the MRI scan not showing a specific finding that points to one specific kind of disorder, the list of possibilities is very broad. I would say probably between 100 and 200 possible different disorders. So at this point, the doctor's conversation with the parents went something like this. One is the concern that this is an underlying neurologic disorder that affects multiple aspects of their child. She's having epilepsy now, she's having coordination problems, and her development has not been on target, and raises a very distinct possibility that this could be a genetic disorder. There are many ways to go about making a diagnosis in a child with these symptoms. Some of them are very specific, like genetic tests, and some are a little bit more general. Along with genetic testing, often some other blood testing is done where results may come back within several days, but they tend to be less specific and less likely to give a specific diagnosis. In medical school, we're usually taught to only order tests that will change what you do, not just what you know. But even when there's no treatment or cure for the genetic disorder, these tests are still valuable for other reasons. One reason is for 
family planning for family guidance. Is this a disorder that occurs in other family members or could occur in other family members? And if it is a disorder that is likely to recur, would that affect the parent's decision or other family members' decision about having additional children? And then the second reason is just peace of mind. I want to know what's going on with this child. Finally, sometimes doing a genetic test early can save the expense and also the long path of doing other diagnostic tests before the thought of a genetic disorder is really top of the list. In our patient, genetic testing revealed a diagnosis of CLN2 disease, or neuronal ceroid lipofuscinosis 2, also known as TPP1 deficiency. This is a neurodegenerative disorder caused by an enzyme deficiency. The deficiency causes buildup of storage materials in the cells, which can lead to delayed speech, progressive loss of motor function, seizures, vision loss, dementia, and eventually death. We have come to learn that if a child has seizures and trouble with movement or coordination or some other movement disorder, then it's highly likely that this will be a genetic disorder. And I'm much more likely to go to genetic testing early in those children, whereas if it's one symptom in isolation, then there are many other possibilities that are not genetic that I would consider first. The road to diagnosis is not one traveled alone. It's always a team effort. Reassessing and reevaluating symptoms play an important role in revealing more clues and helping to refine the DDX. And for the family, the patient, and the specialist, it's often a race against time as well. I think the most important thing for listeners to know is that CLN2 disease and other diseases like it get worse with time. And so for clinicians, I think it's always important to tell families, if there's something new that you're concerned about, don't wait, tell me about it. And for families, the same thing is that there's something new that's concerning in a child that does not have a clear diagnosis. That may be the most important new clue that will lead to a specific diagnosis. Thanks to Dr. Mink for speaking with us. This is DDX, a podcast by Figure One. Figure One is an app that lets doctors share clinical images and knowledge about difficult-to-diagnose cases. I'm Dr. Raj Bardwaj, host and story editor of DDX. You can follow me on Twitter at RajBardwajMD. Head over to figureone.com slash DDX, where you can find full show notes, photos, and speaker bios. This season of DDX is brought to you by Biomarin Pharmaceutical, Inc. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. For more information on diagnostic testing, go to pediatricseizures.com. Thanks for listening.